1: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When an organization wants to get more productive and better reach its goals, it typically looks to retool its leadership, trying to find lone figures who can apply more effective top-down control. But my guest says there's a much more effective strategy for getting things done, creating and empowering teams of self-starters. Kyle Bucket is a retired Navy SEAL, an executive consultant, and the co-author of Leadership is Overrated. How the Navy SEALs and successful businesses create self-leading teams that win. Today in the show, Kyle first unpacks the problems with the conventional model of leadership. He then explains what the self-led team-oriented model looks like and some of the ways to create effective self-led teams, including killing the leader and establishing a ritual-laden culture. We also talk about the role a leader can still play in an organization. Along the way, Kyle shares stories both from history and his experience as a SEAL that illustrate why self-led teams are so effective at getting things done. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash teams. All right, Kyle Bucket, welcome to the show. Thanks
2: for having me, Brett.
1: So you and your co-author have recently published a book with a provocative title. When I saw the title, I was like, I got (laughs) to talk to this guy. Leadership (laughs) is overrated before we talk about the book let's talk about your background because i think it'll help our listeners understand where
2: you're coming from with this idea sure well back in high school i really wanted to serve our country in a unique way in an elite way and i grew up right across the river from west point so what i had access to in high school was you know going to army games you know football games basketball games hockey games And I didn't have any Navy in my background, other than my grandfather's who had served, but you know they wouldn't talk about it that much. So, like, the only thing I really had access to was the Army, and this is the '90s. And Chuck Norris movies were were awesome. I fell in love with Chuck Norris, and I wanted to be Chuck Norris. And so, one day, I'm like, in, in my senior year of high school, I'm 17, and my dad comes home, and he has this book, and he's like, "Hey, man, there's this group called Navy SEALs." You love being in the water. You love being around lakes, rivers, oceans, pools. Like you just love the water. You're a waterman through and through. You were actually swimming before you were walking and you love the water. And you should check these guys out. I know you want to join the army, but you should really check this out. Dude, I stayed up till five o'clock in the morning that night reading the entire book. I think it was Dick Marchinko's Red Team book. And uh, I was like, I want to do that. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> so I'm 17 at the time. My parents would not sign on the dotted line for me to join because, you know, as a minor, you need parental consent. And so, literally, Brett, the morning of my 18th birthday, I'm sitting on the steps of the Navy recruiter's office to sign the dotted line. I'm like, I I need to be a Navy SEAL. That's what I want to do. So I signed the dotted line and, uh, you know, 20 years later and I uh, (laughs) retired from a, a wonderful career and, you know, I had, I got to do a lot of fun stuff during those 20 years, got to do everything from doing some single man loan operations on three separate continents all the way up to, you know, running what I like to joke and kid about, which is the world's most elite university where we train Navy SEALs to be snipers, to be communicators, to be freefall tacticians, to be free fall jump masters, intelligence courses, and on and on and on. It's an awesome school, and I'm very proud of that. And then my largest operation was leading tactically an 800-man Marine element through southern Afghanistan and Kali Valley. And then a lot of things in between, you know, being part of the team that initially implemented in the early 2000s, Palantir into SOCOM, bringing new weaponry to the force, getting to uh, consult on other technologies, both classified and unclassified. So a lot of things in between. And what a lot of people don't know, it's really interesting, you know, the Navy SEALs you see on TV, You see on the movies as running and gunning and blowing stuff up, which we obviously do do that, but we also run the enterprise, which is really interesting. You know, we don't really talk about it that much, but I I find it pretty fascinating, especially now that I'm you know retired and I moved on and have been in corporate America for almost five years now and. It's pretty interesting to me that we don't really talk about that because it translates pretty well. And what I mean by that, let me just real quickly is, you know, we did a big military construction project where we moved the SEAL teams from one area to seven miles away in uh, San Diego, California. Like, that's a a $1.6 billion military construction project. Like, there's no... Green men running around doing this, right? It's it's us. Like we're overseeing the design. We're working with the GCs. We're working the sub vendors. You know, we're working through the entire process to make sure everything goes smooth. We're dealing with environmental impacts to the land, and so on and on and on. Like it's not sexy. Like everyone wants to talk about, you know, the Navy SEAL stuff. And I get it. My point is, is that through that career, which I'm forever grateful for, the uh, Navy and and all it did for me and for others, you know, you get to see a whole world of execution, operations, supply chain, global logistics, you name it. So it's it's pretty exciting. So anyway, needless to say, I became a student of organizational culture, what you can do to uh, build and improve and design a culture, and then what you can do to, you know, scale it and sustain it. But um, yeah, it's a little bit of my background.
1: So what you do in this book is you help along with your co-author help readers understand the culture that's in the seals teams of, of what you call self-leadership. We're going to talk about what that is uh, mm-hmm. exactly. But let's talk about this title of this book. Leadership is overrated. What's wrong with the conventional way we think about leadership, you think?
2: Well, a couple of things. I'll give you kind of like my top 5. I think a lack of adaptability You know, there's rapid changes in tech, in the markets, and global dynamics, and they require, especially nowadays, quick adaptability. And in my opinion, I think there's no one better than the Navy SEALs in reacting quickly and being able to adapt. And, you know, a top-down leadership approach can really hinder agility as decisions may take longer to flow through the hierarchy. Whereas when you have self-led teams, especially in the SEAL team situation, you know as a ground force commander, you're overseeing an entire operation. But a fire team, which is you know an element of four individuals, uh, four to six individuals, might be dealing with a situation, and they just have to take matters into their own hands. And so, when you have that conventional way of thinking it really makes it challenging to have adaptability and make rapid changes in the moment. And nowadays, I, I mean, it's 2023 as we're recording this, and th- the markets are moving so fast. Global dynamics are shifting so fast. I mean, we all just live through COVID, right? Like how much change so fast? So, I mean, the lack of adaptability is a big one for me. And because of that, that kind of trickles into my next point, which is you know innovation suppression you know, hierarchical structures might really stifle innovation and creative thinking. And, you know, when you have ideas from lower level teams or individuals, they might not reach the top or be acted upon properly. You know, my next point is, you know, employee engagement, command and control style can really lead to disengagement and reduced morale amongst your employees as they might really feel undervalued and disempowered. Limited ownership is another one. An hourly employee, for example, uh, might not take full ownership of their work when decisions are solely made at the top. And this can really impact accountability and performance. Slow communication is another big one. You know, information can get distorted, it might delay, or it moves through layers of management leading to misalignment and misunderstanding. And then, you know, at the end of the day, risk, risk aversion, right? Leaders at the top might hesitate to take calculated risks, fearing, you know, negative consequences for their position or their reputation. And so all of these things that I just mentioned, you know, intertwine and really become challenging for the conventional way we think of leadership. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: that makes sense. And another thing you talk about too that stood out to me is that when we focus on the top-down idea of leadership, it puts too much emphasis on that leader, like he's some sort of hero, and that he can change, he can turn a company around. And I've read studies before where basically it's not true. Like you, could, you hire like a rock star CEO, he did well in one company, he goes mm-hmm. to another company, and they think, well, this guy did great at that one company. He should turn this other company around. And then the C- Rockstar CEO just, he, he fumbles. He doesn't do it. And it's because they think it's the leader. Like the leader plays a role, but when it comes down to it, and we're going to talk about today, it's it's the culture. And it's the people it's in the that culture. organization. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well said. Well said. So instead of uh, helping leaders become better leaders, you and the people you work with at Culture help people become self-led teams. So what does it mean to be a self-led team?
2: Well, it means, you know, back to the SEAL analogy, you know, our missions often involve decentralized decision-making where individuals closest to the situation have the autonomy to make quick and informed choices. So what we preach and what we practice and try to empower teams and leaders to do is, hey, have you built in your organization a structure, a decision-making process, whatever you want to call it, a you know uh, policies, uh, procedures, your organizational structure, et cetera, et cetera have you built it into the culture and also your structure? You know, I understand there's legal ramifications for every organization, but have you built it into the organization that the individual closest to the situation has the autonomy to make a quick and informed choice? And then that goes back to, you know, where are you at with training, where are you at with education and on and on and on. But at the end of the day, like, can this leader at the lowest level make a decision or is that individual just going to get hammered because they made a decision and it, oh, well, we, we had to have, you know, John make the decision, you know, Jane's not allowed to make the decision. John has to be the person to make the decision. Right. And so what we dive into with our teams or our leaders is, Hey, at what point does this have to go all the way to the top? Like, can they make a decision here? Can they make a decision here? And and it's interesting because we all take that for granted. Sometimes we don't really deep dive into that. But at what point and where can you make these decisions? You know, do you have decentralized decision-making? Are the groups empowered? Is it a group that's empowering trust and ownership and responsibility? Is it adaptable? Back to what I was saying earlier, And then, you know, how does this communication work? Is communication enabled across all team members for a rapid exchange of information and understanding and on and on and on? So it really goes back to, though, like at what level can you make a decision? And you give an example.
1: It was the Belgian Antarctic Expedition to show what a self-led team looks like. This was a ship in 1897. It was the Belgica And the explorer Roald Amundsen was a part of this crew. What can this expedition teach us about being a self-led team?
2: So in the Belgica, if if you're not familiar, this was one of the first expeditions to the South Pole. And when they get down there, basically they get stuck in the ice for months on end and the shipmates, if you will, start developing You know, obviously a slew of issues, depression, anxiety, all of the things start setting in. People start getting sick, including the captain and commander. And so the captain and commander is bedridden for a month, and uh, bef- leading up to before he gets bedridden, basically one of the uh, individuals, and the, it was the doctor who says, hey, we should start eating penguins. And he's like, What? We can't eat penguins? That's disgusting. And the doctor's like, No, they're full of protein. Our men need penguins. So, sure enough, the uh, commander gets sick. His orders of don't eat penguins kind of now fall flat. And the crew starts taking matters into their own hand and they start eating penguins. And the doctor says, Hey, start playing board games. And they start playing board games. While they're dealing with isolation, scurvy, and harsh weather, and their morale improves slowly over time, now they're starting to get fed. They start making fires on the ice, and they actually come out of it months later. They start nursing the captain back to full health, and they actually come out of it and uh, make the trip and the journey back home, all because of you know the team just started taking ownership of the situation and started working together. Even though the captain, the leader, was down for the count, as you would. And then later on, Roald Amundsen, he becomes very famous for reaching the South Pole. And it's pretty incredible to hear of how that impacted him. And what he then went on to do at his next expedition and how he prepared for the next expedition. It's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, you did a contrast between Amundsen and Robert Falcon Scott. Robert Falcon Scott took the sort of top down. He thought he knew the best way to do things. That's right. Um, and Amundsen, he looked at the teams like, what, what do you guys know? And so I think Falcon Scott, he was like using horses down in the Antarctic for trudging and getting the sleds. And Amundsen was like, that's dumb. Let's let's talk to these Inuit guys. Let's use dog sleds. That's probably more efficient. It's things like that. Right, right, right. You have this chapter that something you guys do in the SEALs is an exercise where you kill the leader. Not literally, but this is a training exercise where you kill the leader. And you recommend uh, the groups that you work with, they do the same thing with their organization. Like do an exercise where you kill the leader. What can killing the leader reveal about a group?
2: Yeah. So, you know, what I mean by that is we will be doing a training scenario and uh, you know maybe the seal platoon or seal troop is taking down a village in a training scenario, or they're in the middle of the desert, and all of a sudden they start taking on enemy fire, and maybe even early or mid operation, a training cadre will walk over to the troop commander or the troop chief or the platoon commander or the the attack lead, and just say, hey, you know, simulating a training situation. Hey, dude, you just took a gunshot to the chest. You have a fatal chest wound. You're down. You're out. And so the platoon or the troop now has to react to the leader is now down. He's out. Okay. And then we get to watch as the next person in the train steps up into that role. The individual who's now killed, for uh, air quotes, He gets to sit there and watch and not say anything, just sit there and take notes. And he gets to watch to see how the next guy steps up into that role and how he does. And it does two things, right? Obviously, it really, (laughs) really sheds light, a spotlight on how well he, the dead guy, has prepared his replacement, and you know, it, for both of them, it's an incredible situation where they now get to go back after the operation or the exercise is done, and they can debrief amongst themselves and kind of do a 360 peer review of each other of, hey, how well did I prepare you, replacement, for this position to step up into this role, to step up into the position, or how well did I not prepare you? Or... On the flip side, like, hey, man, I really thought you were prepared. I thought you were ready for this. I thought we went over this numerous times. Obviously, you weren't prepared. Let's dive back into you know, X, Y, and Z. How can I support you? How can I m- ensure that you're trained and ready to go if this should ever happen again or the next time this happens in a training situation? And on and on and on. Or many times, there's the great success story too, right? The guy steps up and he crushes it. And he does a phenomenal job. And you're like, oh, great. Okay. Now I already, I've already replaced myself. Now we can start working on a second individual to start getting ready to be a replacement and on and on and on. Right. So it's really incredible from multiple uh, standpoints on, you know, killing the leader, if you will. And so what we talk about is hey, if you're ready to actually try this why not just try it on a vacation <laughs> you know go take a vacation for 4 or 5 days and turn your phone off and just stare at the ocean and enjoy enjoy life in mexico or something and and see how your organization or your team or your department does without you being accessible for just a couple of days i think it's an incredible opportunity to just see what happens, see if you're ready to do that and see if the next person in line is ready to rise to the occasion. It's going to show you
1: if you have a self-led organization.
2: That's right. Right. That's
1: right. And you can apply this as well in a lot of other places besides work. Uh, If you belong to a church group, a civic group, you could even do this in your family. Like just say, tell your kids, you know what, kids, I'm not doing anything. (laughs) <laughs> and let's see what happens. Let's see if they're able to keep things going. And you might be surprised. You might find out that uh, you are, in fact, uh, dispensable, <laughs> and, which is good. That's that's the goal of parenting, right? You want to make
2: yourself—they uh, don't need you anymore at a certain point. That's right. That's right. We actually have a funny kind of joke around the house right now that I'm trying to practice what I preach, which is I've become the I. My kids are still fairly young. They're five, eight, and ten. And my wife, who I love dearly, she's a rock star. She's a rock star. But she is technologically (laughs) challenged. Very, very. And she wouldn't mind me saying that. And so (laughs) I have become, especially nowadays where there's all these devices, right? Like I'm the family IT guy sometimes. (laughs) And so I'm trying to remove myself from being that family IT guy.
1: Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know fast-growing trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. And now back to the show. Okay, so instead of focusing on the leader, what you guys focus on is developing a culture. The groups should focus on developing their culture. So how do you define a culture in a group?
2: Yeah, so real quickly, what we really focus on is, hey, you have a culture, no matter what. It's there. It exists. What do you want it to be? Do you want it to be energetic, Do you want, are you striving for a calm environment? Are you striving for, you know, a knowledge base? Whatever it is. It's, it's, to me, it's irrelevant what kind of culture you're desiring to build. What matters, though, is everything we've already talked about. Are you going to empower the self-led teams, right? Simultaneously, what is the culture that you want to build? And do you have buy-in from your team? On said desired culture. Or if you're one of one, okay, it's you, right? It's you, it's bouncing it off your mentors, it's doing self assessments, et cetera, et cetera. But if you do have a team already, it's do you have buy in? And what is that desired culture that you're trying to build? Okay, once you understand what that is, now let's define it, let's put it to words, let's put it to values, let's put it to purpose. And then we go, okay. Now let's build it. And we talk about, these are mainly the, the three sections in our book, right? Is define what you want, then let's build it, and then let's scale and sustain it. And by working by, through, and with your teams, your self-led teams, we believe we have a great recipe to actually do that. You know, culture really refers to the shared values, beliefs, beliefs, the norms, behaviors, and practices of any group or organization or community. It's really that collective identity that shapes how people within the group interact or make decisions. Back to what we were talking about earlier, like, you know, decentralized decision making processes and how they work together. And culture influences the way that we all perceive our roles, how we communicate the overall atmosphere within the group. And so we talk about you know the components of really defining it.
1: Well, I think an important point you made is that every organization, every group has a culture, even if they're not right. oh, proactively creating a culture. Like you have a culture, you have a way of doing things that just passes through tacitly. You don't have to
2: think about it, it's there. hundred percent, a hundred percent. So well said, Brett. You know, no matter what, you've got one. So, thinking, ah, oh, we don't really have, oh, you've got one. Trust me. I'll walk in and feel it in two seconds. A couple of years ago, I think it was 2017 ish, I got to, uh, I got a, a unique two or three days up in Silicon Valley where I went to and spent, you know, three hours ish, two to three hours in the some of the following organizations. I went to Dropbox, Facebook, Instagram. Oracle, Google, Airbnb, and I you know a couple of others, my point is I got to feel in a matter of like 48 hours all of the cultures. And if you ever have the opportunity to do that, regardless of the name of the company, my point is just go and bounce around a couple of organizations in a matter of two days. you'll feel what I'm talking about. you'll feel it. Uh, you'll feel it in two seconds you'll feel the different types of culture at those organizations. So my point of it is to to you and what you just said, Brett, is no matter what, it's there. It exists. If you walk to you know five or six organizations or companies in a matter of a day or two, you'll feel it. And then you can go back to yours and you'll feel yours too. Yeah. Because it's there. It's there.
1: All right. So you're saying if you're going to have a culture, you might as well shape it so that it can get stuff done. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And you've seen the power of culture in your SEAL career. You can go into a SEAL team and there's a culture there that people know just what to do to get stuff done and they just fall in line and they do it cuz that's that's what
2: you do. That's right. We have an incredible an incredible ethos. It's called the Navy SEAL ethos. And you know, it goes into in times of war or uncertainty, there's a special breed of warrior ready to answer our nation's call and I won't, you know, Cite the entire thing, but at the end of the day, forged by adversity, they stand alongside America's finest special operators to serve the country, the American pe- people, and protect their way of life. And everyone, all of us say the following two sentences, which is, I am that warrior, and it is a privilege that I must earn my trident, which is the Navy SEAL insignia. I must earn my trident every day. And so that's ingrained from the day one that you sign up to join till, you know, even today, because we also say, I'm never out of the fight. My training is never complete. And we believe that, right? We totally believe that. Every single Navy SEAL, every single Navy SEAL will believe and agrees that their training is never complete the day that we retire we are non-stop learning and improving and the training's never complete and we're never out of the fight and we're trying every single day to earn our seal insignia the trident we're trying to earn that every day by keeping up with the ethos and our creed and our brothers and being you know my uh my late buddy brad kavner had an incredible Incredible saying that said, Lord, let me not prove unworthy of my brothers, right? Like, I never want to be unworthy of standing along, you know, shoulder to shoulder of any of my fellow men. Like, that's powerful, you know? It's really powerful.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about what we can do to develop that culture. So, like, what's the process look like? How do you figure out what a group's culture should be so it becomes this self led team?
2: Well, first, like what we were saying is like, first and foremost, you got to define it, right? What do you want it to be? Like, what do you want your values to be? What are your core principles and beliefs? What are going to be your norms, your unspoken rules and expectations that govern within the group? Because these norms really define what's considered, you know, acceptable and appropriate. In uh, various situations, and what are you going to allow, right? What are the behaviors? What are the observable actions and interactions? What are going to be, and we talk about this at length, what are going to be the traditions and rituals? Like, what are you going to be your ceremonies, your repetitive actions, your rituals that hold symbolic meaning within the culture? I remember years ago, I I talked with uh, Gary Ridge, who's the CEO chairman of WD-40. And they have an incredible biannual ritual where they basically, you know, come together, sit around a fire and write stuff on a notepad. And then, you know, whatever that commitment is as an individual, they share it with the team and then they throw it in the fire and they do it. And people love it doing that ritual and coming to that you know campfire, that bonfire every year. My point is you don't have to do you know WD40s ritual you just do yours. you do what's symbolic within your culture, within your group whatever's going to reinforce the values and creates a sense of identity. What sorts of rituals did you have as a seal like what did you guys do to keep reinforcing the values you had in your team? Well, that's good I mean, that's a good one. Uh, you know, we had we had a bunch on Fridays would be a lot of times if we were in America, Friday afternoon would be a barbecue. you know, maybe maybe you have some beer, maybe not, but we'd have a barbecue every Friday and sit down and just be with one another before everyone goes and spreads to the winds for the weekend, on deployments. One of my favorite rituals of all time is the AAR, the after action review. So after a long day or a long night, excuse me, the sun's just coming up because we work at night, right? The sun's just coming up. Everyone kind of grabs, no one grabs coffee because we're all going to go to bed. (laughs) But like after a long night of operating, everyone puts all their gear away, takes care of all the gear, puts everything away. And then we sit down in a circle. And we do an AAR, an after action review, where before you walk into that room, you leave all rank, all experience, to a degree, to a degree, but you leave rank, especially outside the door. And what I mean by that is we walk in, we get in, we sit down, and we go over the operation before everyone goes to uh, sleep or everyone goes to you know go eat some food or whatever. We just sit down grab a, you know, water and we just go through it. And so this is what it sound would sound like, right? Here's me, Sam, the tactical lead, you know, and I go, Hey guys, so here's what I did wrong. Here's where I jacked up. Everyone learned from my mistakes. We went to this building. We should have went to that building. I went in this room. I should have went left. Instead. I went right, like learn from my mistakes. This is what I did. I read the door wrong, I read the opening wrong. I read the hallway wrong, whatever it might be, right? And everyone's sitting there, and we're all just taking notes on our notepads, and no one's casting judgment. In fact, we're doing the exact opposite. We're trying to learn from everyone else's mistakes so that we don't make the same mistakes. Because there's going to come a time where that situation is going to present itself again, and you don't want to make that mistake. So you're listening intently, you're not casting judgment and you're you know sharing hey this is what i did this is when i made a mistake no one's giving anyone too too much like we'll josh with each other right we'll joke with each other but we're not giving anyone like serious grief like we're really trying to just focus on learning from each other and uh we're not reprimanding in that moment we're just hey let's focus on sharing our mistakes and that's a really powerful moment in time where You know, the senior guy all the way down to the junior guy is, you know, at the same level in that moment and just sharing what we could have done better. And then, you know, at the end, we'll talk about what we did do great and give everyone a pat on the back as well. Something you talk about too is that in order to have that self
1: led team, you need to have a group of people who are able to lead themselves. Can you? can you inculcate that in another person or is it something you kind of
2: find through a filtering process? So our culture in the SEAL teams, I like to call it, it's a magnet culture, meaning it really draws in those types of individuals who are self-led. And so what, what I like to focus on is, hey, how can you make your team, your organization, a magnetized culture meaning you're going to you're going to draw in those types of individuals who are self-led who are going to help improve the culture how do you make your culture a magnet to the types of individuals that are going to be driven by the opportunities that you're giving them so let me explain a little further we talk about the different types of ways that individuals are motivated Right, And many times, leaders these days just completely ignore that. And this is hard. It's simple, but it's hard, and I get that. But if you never pay attention to it, you're never going to be able to address it. So what I'm talking about is every individual is driven by something different. Some individuals are driven by, you know, compensation. Some individuals are driven by time off with their friends and family. Some individuals are driven by challenging work that's meaningful, you know, and challenging that allows them to utilize their skills, their knowledge and creativity. Some are really motivated by workplace flexibility. You know, hey, can I be remote? can I have a job sharing agreement or arrangement? And that'd be very motivating for some people. Some people are really, really motivated by recognition and appreciation that they're valued for their hard work and achievements. The point of why I go through all these is like, everyone is motivated. One of these is number one for you. And one of these is number one for me. And one of these is number one for Jane Doe and John Doe and on and on and on. My point is, If your culture can feed into those big motivations, you can turn it into a magnet that's going to draw the individuals who are now going to be self-led because they're driven and they're motivated by the opportunity and the motivators that you have built into your organization
1: right and like the seals do this they have this culture that everyone knows about and they know about the training buds right so it's going to attract a certain type of person it's going to attract a guy who's going to wake up on his 18th birthday and sit on the stoop of the recruiting office so he could become a seal
2: that that's right and we're not and we are not gonna and we're not what we're not right like we're not gonna Attract the same type of individuals that a hedge fund in Manhattan is going to attract, right? Like you're really, really driven by competitive compensation. Well, I'll be the first one to tell you, you know, the Navy SEALs—you're not getting paid a lot, <laughs> right? Right. So we're not going to attract that type of individual that's really self-led by, hey, I want to really have a high comp. But to your point, yeah, purpose and meaning, challenging work—we're going to attract those guys in spades.
1: You know, we've been talking about how leadership is overrated, like the the top-down command is overrated. But you have a section talking about how leadership is still important. You have to have a leadership position for accountability or legal reasons. And the SEALs, there's got to be someone who the buck stops with. So if something goes wrong, they can go to that guy and say, hey, what, what went wrong? But also right. you need a leader in an organization to just get the self-led team going in the first place. That's right. So what role does a single leader
2: play in creating a self-led team? Being aware and, and a desire, being aware of where you're at, starting on the branch you're on. And then really it's, it comes back to desire, right? Like if you don't have a desire to make an impact or improve things, it's just not going to happen. It just doesn't have, it it goes back to, you're going to have a culture, but is it going to be a positive one? Is it going to be an empowering one, a trusting one, or is it just going to be, is it just going to become a mess? Like, is it not going to be a positive environment? No team collaboration, no education or learning and, and and all decisions have to keep coming to you and you just get bogged down and bogged down and back down with, you know, decision paralysis, Right. So it's really you know that desire and and awareness to actually do it. And to your point, you can do this at any single level. Like you can you can do this at your level with the individuals that are around you. Listen, I was at a grocery store a couple weeks ago and the individual was just incredible. You could tell he was, you know, you know how they have those attendees at the self checkout area. There's always like one attendee, you know what I mean? Right. And this individual, you could tell this guy, this guy was a rock star and the, the self checkout area at a grocery store, which is, you know, eight different stations was just like you could feel the vibe, the energy, the positivity that this individual was having on all eight people that were just checking out of a grocery store. It was incredible. And I went up to that guy afterwards and I told him and I gave him a big old pat on the back. My point is, is you can have it at any level.
1: You don't need authority to be a leader that gets a self-led team going. I think a lot of times we confuse authority with power. You can have power, but not... And by power, I mean like influence, right? I'm not talking about... Right. right. But you can have that influence even if you're not in a position of authority. You can get the ball rolling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So well said. Well, we got to end this with one of my favorite stories. You talk about the Finnish army during World War II as a great example of what happens when a group organization becomes self-led. So this is a fight against the Soviet Union, right? This is like the largest military force (laughs) at the time. And I think they had, if I remember correctly, like like, 200,000. Yeah. The Russians had uh, three times more soldiers than the Finnish, five times more artillery, 30 times more aircraft, a hundred times more tanks. And yet the Finns were able to hold these guys off for a long time. These is kind of like these basically farmers who put on their skis and used, you know, iron sighted rifles to hold these guys off. So what can we learn from the Finnish army during World War II about creating a culture of being a self-led team?
2: Yeah, so they had, in the face of their limited resources and, and very, very challenging terrain, they had to make quick decisions on the ground. You know, they're buttoned up in skis and dressed in all white and they're skiing around making quick decisions and it really enabled them to, you know, have decentralized decision making back to the earlier point but the uh, commanders placed a trust in their and competence in the expertise of a, their soldiers even though they didn't necessarily have great training like a obviously like a modern day navy seal but but the officers really respected the skills of their subordinates they respected what they brought to the table and then they fed into that using, you know, guerrilla tactics, you know, reading off of, hey, this farmer or that mountain man knows this about the terrain, let's feed into that. Let's exploit the strengths of our team and enable, you know, the culture to really encourage these soldiers to think creatively and adapt to the situation. And so, obviously they were extremely clear on their mission. They had trust decentralized decision-making, empowerment, collaboration, all of it. It was incredible to read and learn of this story of how, you know, they just were just cutting through the opposition left and right, and they wouldn't even see him coming because they had never faced anything like this. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I think it's a great example of self-leadership. There wasn't anyone telling these guys what to do. There was was some top-down command, but the top-down command basically let these Finnish guys do – do things according to what they thought fit the situation. It was very decentralized.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the Red Army, you know, they thought this was going to be like a week. (laughs) They thought this was going to be a week. And then three and a half months later, after the initial invasion, they're just still getting hammered, right? They're just getting hammered. So, uh, the numbers vary, I, but if I remember correctly, the Finns suffered, I think, 25,000 deaths, and the Russians lost around 135,000. Yeah. And, a, and another 150,000 wounded. So, it's, it's pretty remarkable.
1: And they also had this culture in Finland. They had this value called Sisu. Mm-hmm. Which is, the best translation is, it's like grit, determination. And they, they all shared that. And I think they inculcated that value. I mean, I'm sure their culture already inculcated that value. But them being in the army and trying to do things on a shoestring and being economical and efficient, those types of things really probably reinforce that Sisu value of grit and hardihood and determination. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Well, well, Kyle, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about
2: the book and your work? Uh, thanks so much. Uh, www.leadershipisoverrated.com. Please check us out. Uh, you can learn more about our services and offerings and products. Appreciate your time here, Brett. This has been wonderful learning from you as well.
1: Well, (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Kyle Bucket, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today is Kyle Bucket. He's the co-author of the book, Leadership is Overrated. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, cultureforce.team. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash teams, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliess.com, where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we have written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you to not listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.